Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 4 as we focus our attention upon verse 4 of Romans chapter 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You can see verse 5 provides a contrast. And these are two sides of the coin here in the argument that Paul is making. So verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness. So we've got a statement concerning Him who works and a statement concerning Him who does not work, but believes. And this morning, with God's help, we'll be considering the first of those ways of obtaining righteousness before God. The first of those two ways or methods of gaining eternal life. The first of the two ways of relating to God. We could even say the first of these two covenants, uh, as we'll see momentarily. But Paul here is setting forth a message, uh, a, a statement concerning Him who works. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And here again, it's very important that we understand exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying there are two ways of obtaining righteousness before God. Works and by grace through faith. There are two ways of gaining eternal life in the sight of God. By works or by grace through faith. There are two ways of relating to God. In a covenant of works, or a covenant of grace through faith. 
These are the two things that he's setting forth. These are the two contrasting ways that you find throughout this epistle of Romans, indeed throughout the Scriptures. Uh, We saw in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 27, he says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. He says there are two laws, two principles by which man can be right with God. There's a law of works, a covenant of works, if you will, or a covenant or law of faith. These are these two ways of relating to God and and finding favor with God. Paul frequently contrasts two ways of justification. Justification by works, Romans 2.13-14. He says, the doers of the law shall be justified. But then he speaks in chapter 3, verse 24, of those who are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. So you have justification by works, you have justification by grace through faith in Christ. We find in in chapter 5, Paul sets forth one manner of obtaining righteousness that was given to Adam, and he failed. And he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, even Christ, and he succeeded. A covenant of works, a justification of works, a law of works, and a covenant of grace, a law of faith, and so on and so forth. We could go through this entire epistle and see that there's the righteousness of the law, Romans 10, 4 and following. The righteousness of the law, the one who does these commandments shall live by them, and the righteousness of faith that says Christ has done it. You can look it up for yourself. There are these two ways of obtaining righteousness, two ways of gaining eternal life, two ways of relating to God that have existed in this world. And so we look at Verse 4, it's speaking to us clearly of the first of those two ways. By works. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So this is the first method of being right with God. If you're going to do it this way, if you're going to work for it, it's going to be wages. It's going to be debt. You're going to have to earn it according to God's perfect standard. He's not just going to give it to you. He's not just going to hand it to you. He's not just going to say, well, believe in someone else who did something else for you. No, you have to do it yourself. If it's by works, you have to earn your wages. And you have to uh, essentially fulfill what God has promised to reward, and therefore God gives it to you as a debt. He's indebted to His promise. That's the first way of obtaining righteousness unto eternal life in the sight of God. We could put it this way. Those who relate to God by way of a covenant of works receive precisely what their deeds deserve according to the terms of the covenant. Those who relate to God by way of a covenant of works receive precisely what their deeds deserve according to the terms of the covenant. Let's unpack this first. Those who relate to God understand we as God's reasonable creatures Of course, some of us are more reasonable than others, but of course, that historic word, right? It refers to the fact that we are reflecting the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In some sense, like the angels. But God has made all of His reasonable creatures to glorify and enjoy Him forever. God has created us to be in a relationship with Him, to reflect His glory, and to take pleasure in His fellowship. And yet, there are limitations to the natural relationship that God and man would have apart from any sort of covenant. You see, God is infinite. He's unlimited. He's boundless. He's transcendent. He's infinitely above us. We have more in common with a grasshopper than God has in common with us because God is the Creator and both we and the grasshoppers are creatures. God is holy, holy, holy. The thrice holy God that even the angels who've never sinned are amazed and cry out in His presence. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with His glory. God is God. 
and we are but men, but creatures, but finite, limited creatures with, as we've been created in Adam, with the capacity to fall. So when God made Adam and Eve, they're creatures, they're finite, they're limited, there's an infinite distance between God and man, and yet He creates us in relationship with Himself, and yet there's a capacity to fall into sin. God created man in that way. That's the natural relationship that God has to man. And so, naturally speaking, apart from any sort of covenant, uh, Adam and Eve would have had the threat of death for sin. That's something that's not something God superimposed arbitrarily or voluntarily, but that's just the nature of the case. The soul who sins shall die. Adam and Eve, apart from any covenant, would have been threatened with death for sin. Because life is fellowship with God. And death is being cut off from God. And because God is holy, sin cannot dwell in His presence. So the natural relationship between God and man uh, would have provided a punishment of death, even eternal death, for sin against an eternal God. And so continuance in that fellowship with God by creation would have been contingent and dependent. It would have hinged upon Adam and Eve continuing to obey God, continuing in the righteousness in which they'd been created, the knowledge, the holiness. It would have been contingent upon Adam and Eve and their children and their children. The moment anybody fell, that person would be cast out of God's sight into eternal death and destruction. That's the natural relationship between God and man. And so it would have been perpetually suspended upon the obedience and continuance of every human being that proceeded from Adam and Eve. Their present obedience would have provided a present assurance. I know I will be in fellowship with God right now because I'm obedient right now. But there's no absolute assurance of the future. I could get up the next day, fall into sin, or my child could, or whatever it is, and, and whoever sins shall die. So there was a glass ceiling, uh, or would have been a glass ceiling, on the natural relationship between God and man. Uh, man would have been a servant of God, but could never have had that sonship that God created us ultimately to desire. God created us in such a way that, that we would desire something beyond present obedience to give present assurance, suspended on our present faithfulness. God created us to, to desire something beyond that. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that a son dwells in the house forever. We desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Adam and Eve had an inborn desire for that. But the natural relation between a creator and creature would not provide for that. So God graciously established a covenant. So we, we see in our, in our doctrine here this morning, those who relate to God by way of a covenant. By way of a covenant. In the way we're using it here this morning, the way uh, the Scriptures use it, particularly in the New Testament uh, and in the Old, as we think of this relating to God by way of a covenant, we're thinking of a divinely established agreement promising eternal life to many for the temporary obedience of one. To relate to God by way of a covenant is to relate to Him by way of a divinely established agreement promising eternal life to many for the temporary obedience of one. And the first covenant by which God relates to man and man to God in human history is the covenant of life by works. It's important to think of it this way. Our catechism refers to this covenant with Adam as a covenant of life and a covenant of works. It's crucial that we understand this is a covenant of life by works. So the reward is eternal life which is promised to many for the temporary obedience of one, a covenant of life by works, because it's for the temporary obedience of one. That's the, that's the hinge. That's the condition of this covenant. It's a covenant of life by works. And God made it with all humanity in our father Adam, the first Adam. 
He made it with all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation. So that excludes Emmanuel, God with us, Christ. But other than that, we're all in Adam, the first Adam. God made this covenant with him. He established this agreement with Adam, promising eternal life to many, that is all mankind, for the temporary obedience of one, that is Adam himself. Now right off the bat, you can see there's grace in the establishment of this covenant. Because rather than man being suspended upon his own performance perpetually with the possibility of falling at any moment, this covenant promises eternal life. Not contingent life, uh, moment by moment, eternal, unlosable life. And not contingent upon the faithfulness of every man for himself, but one, Adam himself, the father of mankind who was most equipped. You know, this is, this is if it was a baseball lineup. This is our cleanup hitter. This is the guy. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, dominion over the creatures. He walked with God. This is the guy, humanly speaking, that we want representing us. Perfect in his righteousness. God says, if this one man obeys me, and, and you know what? He doesn't have to obey me perpetually in the sense of, ongoing for, for you know, all eternity. But if He obeys me perpetually within the confines of a test, a probation, a temptation, if He obeys me in terms of temporary obedience, which has a beginning and an end, just like Jesus in the, you know, tempted by Satan. Satan came and went. If He obeys me in this temporary test of obedience, then the obedience of one will bring eternal life to the many. This is the covenant of life by works in the first Adam, and it includes all of us by nature. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, you see that the test involves not eating of the forbidden fruit. We see a tree of life signifying the eternal life that was offered to Adam. And we find that God places Adam and Eve in the garden. Chapter 3, Satan tempts them, tests them and specifically tests Adam, our covenant representative. But God in this covenant repeats the threat. So the threat of death that was intrinsic and inherent to the relationship between God and man is repeated. It's not added. It's not as though God's covenant of life by works adds a threat of eternal death for sin. That's already baked into the natural relationship between God and man. But what's added is this promise of life signified by the tree of life and repeated throughout the scriptures uh, you see it in Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler if you would enter into life keep the commandments you see it with Paul the doers of the law shall be justified you see it throughout the scriptures again and again and again this promise is repeated we dealt with that in Sabbath school a couple weeks ago but the promise is added Do this and you will live. As I mentioned, there's grace in the establishment of this covenant. God didn't have to give mankind this wonderful opportunity, but He did. So that's unmerited blessing or favor. However, the principle on which righteousness and eternal life are imputed, the the, the principle upon which the reward is granted the hinge or the condition upon which eternal life comes to the members of this covenant is one of works. Righteousness is imputed by works. You could say, well, Adam is enjoying the favor of God, the grace of God. He's acting by faith and all of those things notwithstanding. All those things might be true. But it was his own performance in the trial and the temptation that determined the outcome. If he sinned, mankind fell. And sin and guilt was imputed to mankind. And man would have been infected with spiritual death and so on, which is exactly what happened based on Adam's performance. Had Adam obeyed, had he been a doer of the law, mankind would have been justified unto eternal life. So the imputation of righteousness in this covenant is by works. The covenant is very generous and gracious, but the hinge of it is Righteousness of works, the performance of Adam himself. Now, the second covenant of life by which God 
promises eternal life to many for the temporary obedience of one. The second covenant of life is a covenant of life by grace. And this covenant is not made with the first Adam because he dropped the ball. Okay? He brought sin and misery into the world. And, and so this covenant is made with the second Adam. And it's not made with the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and inclusive of all mankind, but rather this covenant is made with the second Adam, the seed of the woman, with all the elect as his seed, all believers throughout all history, all those whom God loved and chose to believe in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It's Christ and his elect seed that are in this covenant of life by grace through faith. Now, the second Adam in this covenant has to clean up for what the first Adam messed up, fouled up. He endures the penalty because you see, Adam's sin is imputed to all of God's elect, really to all mankind, but in saving the elect, the Lord Jesus Christ has to endure the penalty that the elect have, have had brought on them through Adam's sin. Also the penalty for their own sins. So, the Lord Jesus Christ endures the penalty through His life of suffering, even unto the death of the cross. And He fulfills the precept that's required to gain eternal life. God promised, do this and live. Jesus says, it is finished. I've done it. I've finished the work that you've given me to do, John 17. He fulfills all the precepts. He fulfills all righteousness. Now, this covenant of life by grace is established by grace, just like the first covenant of life by works. God is generous to even establish these kinds of things with mankind. Uh, But this covenant is uniquely gracious because in this covenant, righteousness is not imputed by the works of man, but rather righteousness is imputed to, not even to mankind, but really to mankind as sinners. Righteousness is imputed to sinful mankind. Righteousness is imputed to the ungodly who are justified by grace through faith. Now, in one sense, those who are saved through the covenant of life by grace are saved by works. They're saved by the works of Christ. They're saved by His suffering. They're saved by His obedience. They're saved by His death. They're saved by His resurrection. They're saved by His priestly intercession. They're saved by the works of the second Adam. But of course, what makes this gracious is that the source of the works in the first covenant is man. And the source of the works in the second covenant, the covenant of life by grace, it comes from the God-man. God became man. God lived a life of perfect obedience. God suffered and died on the cross. It's the blood of God that redeemed His church. Acts chapter 20. God Himself has wrought this. It's God's Son accomplishing God's righteousness, which is to all and on all who believe, received by the faith of God's elect. And so, my friends, you can see this in Romans chapter 5 quite clearly. Romans chapter 5 Verse 17 juxtaposes first covenant, the second covenant. Uh, The covenant of life by works in Adam versus the covenant of life by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So in the first covenant, Adam, on behalf of mankind, is obtaining, earning, securing righteousness unto eternal life by his own performance. Those who relate to God by a covenant of works receive precisely what their deeds deserve according to the terms of that covenant. Paul says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So had Adam fulfilled his covenant obligation on behalf of mankind, God would have given righteousness and life to mankind according to the promise, according to that promise 
which implies a debt that God places on himself. It would be by debt, by wages, by works. But notice Paul describes the righteousness unto eternal life that we receive through the covenant of life by grace. And he says it's a gift of righteousness. Yes, Jesus had to pay for the gift, right? If your parents, children, if your parents get you a birthday gift, okay, and they give it to you, uh, chances are they paid for that gift. Hopefully they didn't steal it, okay? They paid for it. They swiped their credit card or tapped it on the little machine. They, 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 you know, Amazon Prime, next day, whatever it is, they got that gift and then they give it to you. It's free for you, but it was purchased by your parents, The covenant of life by grace is very similar. It's a gift of righteousness to God's elect, but it was accomplished by God Himself, purchased by God Himself, even the Son of God, in human flesh. And therefore, Paul always refers to it as the righteousness of God. That's what undergirds the graciousness of the covenant of life by grace. And if you look at... uh, By the way, further on in Romans 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made or constituted sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous, constituted righteous, declared righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there are these two covenants. Covenant of life by works, it failed. It brought death. And the covenant of life by grace, it is finished. And through it, Jesus Christ gives eternal life to all who will believe. But this morning we're focusing, because in verse 4 Paul is focusing on the covenant of works. The covenant of life by works. This is what verse 4 is clearly describing. Look at the terms he uses. To him who works, the wages. What are wages? Again, children. Uh, At some point your parents are going to come to you and say, get a job. And you're going to apply for a job and you'll be excited. You get the job and fill out a bunch of paperwork, and eventually you start working, and every couple weeks you get a paycheck. And depending on how many hours you worked, you earn a wage. And so maybe you're getting $10 an hour, $12 an hour, with inflation within the next year or two, who knows, $25, you know, we'll all be millionaires, the way the the government's uh, spending money, we'll all be millionaires in a couple years. But the point is that you, you may be making $12 an hour, let's say, you work five hours, you get $12 an hour, uh, you, know, you get $60, and then they, you know, the government takes its share. But, but this is what you earn by your work. He, he refers to this covenant of works as works, wages, not as grace, but as debt. So Paul could not be more explicit that there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. There's a justification by works and a justification by grace, and never the twain shall meet. You try to mix these two together, and you, you get a reaction that will send, send you straight to hell. Um, the covenant of works, works, wages, debt. The language he uses here, not counted as grace but as debt, would be better translated not imputed according to grace, but according to debt. So he's talking about the hinge, the principle, the condition on which these things happen. And, and it's, it's not a principle of grace by which righteousness is imputed or accounted, but one of debt. You've earned it and you're paid your wages. And you can see this throughout chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21, uh, where there's a a contrast here between works and grace. And I'm not going to actually, for the purposes of time, we're not going to spend much time there. But I do want to point your attention to chapter 6, verse 23, because I think this makes it crystal clear. This is a verse that many of us have memorized. For the wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we've already seen that our justification is a gift of righteousness. And what he's saying here is that that gift of righteousness is a gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the covenant of grace, a gift of righteousness, and ultimately because of the righteousness, a gift of the eternal life that that righteousness has merited in the sight of God. That's the second covenant of grace. But the first half of this speaks clearly to the covenant of works, for the wages of sin is death. So salvation, righteousness, life in the second covenant is a gift of grace. But life or death, righteousness or unrighteousness in the first covenant is wages. And in Adam's case and in our case, because we didn't obey it, but we broke the covenant of works, the wages of our sin is death. It's what we deserve. It's what we're owed. Our work has been uh, reckoned and calculated, and here's what we've won, eternal damnation. The wages for the sinful works that we've done, this is all a principle of works, not according to grace, but according to debt. One way or the other, either Adam obeying and God fulfills his promise because he's obligated himself, or Adam fails and we receive the debt of punishment, the penalty, uh, unrighteousness, guilt, destruction, according to what we deserve. Now we're told in this passage, if we, if we continue with our summary of the doctrine, that those who relate to God by way of a covenant of works receive precisely what their deeds deserve according to the terms of the covenant. We could go back to Romans chapter 2, And we could see the terms of this covenant by which all mankind outside of Christ will in fact be judged. Uh, You can see chapter 2, verse 3. At the end there, he says, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. In other words, you are accruing these wages, the wages of unrighteousness. You are adding, multiplying the wages of unrighteousness. If we use the other word that Paul employs, debt, you're racking up debt up to your eyeballs. Eternal judgment. The wrath of God. Treasuring it up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now here's here's the two-sided nature of this covenant of works. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Unfortunately, aside from Christ, none of us fit that, right? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We haven't done that. We've sinned daily in thought, word, and deed. But the offer is there. It's just that because of the flesh, because of sin, because of Adam's sin, because of our sin, we are disqualified. We are condemned. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking. Now that sounds a lot more like us by nature. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Again, what have we won, Johnny? Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So you see this covenant of works, you get what you pay into it. Uh, it's, it's according to your works, rendered to each one according to his deeds, according to the terms of the covenant. Now, for the first Adam, he would have had the opportunity to obey and to uh, gain eternal life in that way. And sometimes people question whether we should use the word merit to describe what Adam had to do to gain eternal life for all mankind. Should we call that merit? Well, if by the term merit, we mean that Adam's obedience in that temporary temptation would have 
paid the full value for what eternal life costs, then of course we should not use the word merit. Uh, but again, notice that the way that we phrase the doctrine, it's, it's what their deeds deserve according to the terms of the covenant. This is what we would call promissory merit. It's merit by promise. It's like if I said to you, I'll sell you this one ounce gold coin for $50. Okay? I'll sell you this one ounce gold coin for $50. Uh, now, I, I don't know what, what a one ounce gold coin goes for these days. Um, I've been trying to mortify that interest in my life to some extent. But let's say it's $1,800, $2,000. Okay? So if I say, I'll sell you this gold coin for $50, you give me the $50, you've purchased it, right? It's yours. You paid the price that I asked for it. That is a transaction that's been done legally. It's, it's, it's a binding transaction. You've merited that one ounce gold coin, and I've sold it to you, and that's that. Uh, I promised I would do it. I fulfill the promise. If I promise you that I'm going to sell you the gold coin for $50 and then I come back with some other coin, I've broken my promise. My promise has obligated me to engage in that transaction. If you meet the condition, I'm obligated. I'm indebted to give you what I said I would give you for the $50. That's the sense in which Adam would have merited eternal life. Not in an ultimate sense in the absolute value of his temporary obedience in one temptation in the garden. No way would that fully equal eternal, unlosable communion with God for eternity. But uh, it, it was wages and debt according to the terms of the covenant. Now, in terms of Christ the second Adam, we can use the term merit with a capital M. This is intrinsic merit. This is proper merit. The obedience and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has an infinite value because He's the infinite Son of God. He's obeyed the law. He's suffered unto death on the cross. He is risen and His merit is intrinsic. It's proper. It's the full value. He could have redeemed a thousand worlds of God's elect people with His obedience and sacrifice. It's the full price. We're bought with a price. Uh, it is finished. But it's, it's over and above even what would have been needed to pay for our sins and to gain eternal life. So Jesus merited it in a sense that Adam did not, though that word merit could be applied to both. Now, uh, who are those who relate to God by way of a covenant of works? Who are they? Who relates to God in this way? Aside, obviously, from the first Adam who failed by eating the forbidden fruit. Who else is in this covenant? Well, all mankind who are conceived and born in Adam, in sin, are by nature in this covenant. That's why Paul in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. In other words, under the condemnation of the law. They're under obligation to keep the law. They've not kept the law. And now they're under the, the condemnation of that law. Those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. Who's under the law? Everyone. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That includes Jews, Greeks, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, male, female, everyone, every mouth, all the world is under the condemnation of the law in their father Adam by nature, and they by nature have become guilty before God. Why is that? Uh, Romans 5.12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because, and the Greek grammar seems to be very clear here, when it, when it uses these words, because all sinned. Because all sinned. It's very clear in the Greek grammar that, that all sinned in Adam. That when the one man sinned and sin entered the world, it's because all sinned in him and through him. You can look up commentators on that, but the, the point is we sinned in Adam 
and we've inherited a corrupt nature. We've sinned in ourselves. And so we're disqualified. We're under the covenant of works. We don't have the opportunity to gain life anymore by our works because we've been disqualified, but we're still under the condemnation of this covenant, storing up wrath and the wages of sin. We're still obligated to the precepts and we're still indebted to the penalty. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 speaks of all of us by nature in Adam. Galatians 3, verse 10. This is also the Apostle Paul. You can see the strong parallel connection here. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Under the law, under sin, under the curse. If you're of the works of the law, if you're of the law of works, the covenant of works, the covenant of life by works, it's no longer a covenant of life for you, it's a covenant of death, and you are cursed. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You want to earn it. You want your wages. You want that indebtedness by promise from God. You have to do everything in the law. And yet you've sinned. And so you're disqualified. And you're under the curse by nature. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. My friends, that first covenant, the ship sailed. There's no more opportunity to be right with God through that covenant. You're under the curse. And that's why it's important to understand the infinite grace and love of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. The eternal Son of God freely chose to come into this world to be the second Adam. To bear up that burden that Adam had dropped, that we had dropped, that where we'd all failed and made a mess of it. He came into the world and fulfilled verse 4 of our text so that we could enjoy verse 5 of the text. Now to Him who works, my friends, more than anyone else, that is Jesus Christ. To Him who works, He finished the work given to Him by the Father. It is finished. He has done it. To Him who works the wages. Isaiah 53, He shall see the labor of his soul. That word labor means wages. It's translated that way elsewhere, that idea. He shall see the, the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Even the redemption of his people. His work. He works. The wages are not counted as grace. My friends, Jesus Christ did not receive anything by grace. Okay, Jesus did not go out and, and do a halfway job and God said, well, I'll add the rest by a free gift. Jesus paid the redemption price. We were bought with a price. Jesus did it. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the work that the Father had given Him. So that word grace, in a sense, the word is such a broad word, we can apply it to Christ, but not in the sense that what He did for us was, and what He's received for us was undeserved. It's clear in the Scriptures that Jesus fulfilled the work and through the labor of His soul, He has been satisfied. Not counted as grace, but as debt. He is the mediator. He is the surety who signed on the dotted line from all eternity and paid with His own precious blood to take up and pay all of our debts and to impute all of His righteousness to our account and to give us an infinite, eternal weight of glory which He paid for with His infinite, eternal, boundless merit in the sight of God. And that's why when you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and you come into His presence, the Bible says, confess your sins for He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is it that we can come to the presence of God through Christ and confess our sins and know that God will forgive them for Jesus' sake? 
and know that God must forgive them for Jesus' sake because we have an advocate with the Father and because He is faithful and just. What, what sort of language is that? It doesn't say He's gracious and merciful to forgive in that verse, but it's telling us that the grace and mercy of God to us in Christ is grounded in His faithfulness and in His justice to reward the people of Christ with all that Christ has purchased for them. It would be unjust for the Father not to receive anyone who comes to Him through faith in Christ and forgive their sins. It would be unfaithful, perish the thought, for the Father not to receive one who comes through faith in Christ confessing their sins. Understand, of course, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He wants you to come. He commands you to come. He longs for sinners to come to Him. And we're told that He saves to the uttermost all who come to God through Christ. So we conclude with this question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do? I'm in my father Adam. I'm of the works of the law. I've lived my life in a way trying to be religious trying to do what's right, maybe even trying to obey the Bible, maybe even praying and reading the Bible, coming to church because I thought, well, I'm doing what God wants me to do and somehow that's going to make me right with God and I'll go to heaven. It's what my parents want me to do. It's, it's what my elders want me to do. This is what I need to be doing. It's what I ought to be doing. And somehow that's going to get me in a good relationship with God. But now I've come to realize that that's not the case. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm trying to have life by my own works, by my own performance. My friends, this is so subtle. There are many people on Judgment Day who will think they have believed the gospel of grace and that they're saved by Christ and they will come to realize that at the end of the day they were trusting in their own works. Lord, Lord, those people in Matthew 7, no doubt they thought they were trusting in the grace of God. Lord, Lord, Did we not do these many mighty works in your name? If they had examined themselves more deeply, they would have seen that what seemed to be a profession of faith in the grace of God through Christ throughout their lives was really resting in their own performance, in their own comparative righteousness in relation to others. What must I do to be saved? First, renounce all confidence in your own works. Renounce them. Be like the old Scottish preacher on his deathbed who said that he, he renounced all of his good deeds and his bad deeds. He threw them in a heap before the cross and renounced them all. Renounce them. Cast them away. Apart from Christ, apart from this covenant of grace, your, your, your best works of righteousness are filthy rags. The Bible says they're dung. Paul counted them as loss. He put them in the loss column. You need to renounce them. You need to come before God, not like the Pharisee who said, God, I thank you that I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. No, he came before God's temple beating his breast. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That word merciful in the Greek, be propitious. Look to the propitiation, the sacrifice, the obedience of Jesus Christ on my behalf and be merciful to me, the sinner. Secondly, having renounced all confidence in your own works, you need to believe and accept and embrace Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death and resurrection. Embrace, not just affirm it propositionally, Believe it, receive it, claim it, get hold of it in your hands, don't let it go, and and recognize that the righteousness of faith does not say that I've done what I need to do, I've done this, I've I've fulfilled the law, Uh, many mighty works in your name. No, the righteousness of faith says this, Romans 10, 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. He's saying, you don't need to bring Christ down. You don't need to come down or go up. or You don't need to do anything. 
You need to be the one who doesn't work. The one who looks to the work of Christ and says, Christ came down for me. Christ accomplished and fulfilled all righteousness. Christ died for my sins. Christ ascended up into heaven. I had no part in it. All I do is hear the word and believe. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. My dear friend, receive that righteousness and then immediately, I would say right now, approach God's judgment seat by faith and humbly, boldly make your claim. This is a part of saving faith that people often leave out. You need to come before God. You need to come to the Father through Christ and you need to come with the righteousness of Christ as it were in your hands and in prayer say, Lord, look upon the face of your anointed. Look not upon me, for I am sinful and corrupt from my conception and birth. Look to my Savior, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed me. Look to His shed blood. Look to His perfect obedience. Make your claim in the courts of heaven. And He will save you to the uttermost. And my friend, when you've done that, when you've gone to the Father and made your claim, believe and accept heaven's verdict. Believe and accept that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That having been justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Believe the Scripture. Jesus says of the publican, He he went down to His house justified. Go down to your house justified. I know it takes time for the Spirit sometimes to work full assurance in the conscience, but it starts with believing the promise, receiving the verdict by faith. God says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved and you will be righteous in the sight of God and you will go down to your house justified. Believe it. My friends, let's pray. Our gracious God, what a joy to contemplate the work of Christ who has, as it were, taken up the broken covenant of works and fulfilled it, even according to that eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which sets in motion your covenant of life through grace in this world by which we have been saved to the uttermost. We pray, O Lord, that You would beget faith in the hearts of Your elect, that You would gather them unto Yourself, clothed in the garments of salvation, even in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.